Welcome, I'm Kevin Smith with Arite Incident Response. I'm excited to share actual incident response cases, chat about IT security, and introduce you to the most influential players in the industry. With that, let's get moving, and thanks for joining this episode of Security Superpowers. Welcome to Security Superpowers. Today, we have a very special guest to discuss endpoint protection and the future of fighting cybercrime. He's a senior vice president of worldwide sales engineering for Sentinel One. He's got an ABD PhD in technology management from Indiana State University. He was in the Air Force uh, as a chief in communication systems, uh, focusing on security architecture and cyber defense systems. Please welcome Mr. Jared Phipps. How are you doing today, Jared? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. So um, this is, you know, I've been waiting a long time to have a conversation with you. Um, and, you know, between Arite and Sentinel One, we have an amazing relationship uh, with your organization. Um, but I first want to just uh, focus on, on you uh, at the very beginning here. What got you involved in in this whole cybersecurity realm and, and what was your path? Yeah. Well, uh, a quick commentary on the relationship. Yeah. I mean, we're, um, we're big fans of Arate and I think what Arate has been doing has been pretty, pretty amazing and, and disrupting a bit in the, uh, the DFIR space. So it's, it's pretty impressive to see what Arate has been doing. Um, so my, my path in cybersecurity, it's, it's a bit interesting. Um, my first job in the Air Force was in Omaha, Nebraska, at, off at Air Force Base, and I was the uh, the OIC of a software design shop that wrote emergency access messages uh, for the nuclear command and control. So, if you've seen movies like The Hunt for Red October, and that little ticker tape comes out that's got the you know the, the direct line, <laughs> the one that always fails. <laughs> <laughs> that um, that was the software right, you know. Um, and so I was I was at my apartment over a weekend doing some code review, and it wasn't classified systems or anything. But I was just thinking to myself, like you know, I probably shouldn't be sitting in my apartment doing code review on nuclear command and control software. Like that could be a bad thing. And so we went back and we did a whole comprehensive review and a security program, and we put a whole security program around that. And then, you know, from there I got, I would say, some opportunities to go do base level comms and get involved in some of the, the auditing and some of the security hardenings that go with that. And it just became a really fascinating um, aspect of, of the job to me. And, you know, when I went in the Air Force, there's like 200 and tw over 220 military bases and every single one had their own IT stack and their own security stack. And they're the sort of a best practices guide to follow, but you could do your own thing. And down in San Antonio, they were working and building on, you know, this this holistic, comprehensive, you know, 12 gateways through the Air Force cyber stack. So I got to go down and work in the information operations battle lab. And, and that, that exposed me to both cyber attack and cyber defense programs um, holistically from, from the, the global perspective. And it's just from that point forward, it's really been all focused on security. Um, you know, after the Air Force did a little bit of reverse engineering before going and working at MITRE for a while on cryptographic modernization. So all, all in cyber defense stuff and then uh, pivoted over to the vendor space, of, well, I guess about nine years now. Uh, and I've been doing, you know, cyber defense architectures and I've 
worked on architectures and designs for, you know, you, you name it. I've, I've been dealt with projects with Apple and Microsoft and Samsung. I mean, pretty much everybody you can, you can think of in major tech companies and stuff and working on those big global architectures and those programs. It's just, it's been a really fascinating, um, a fascinating ride. So yeah, I've been doing this for a while now. And so you, so you brought that, you brought that skill set to Sentinel one. How, how old is the company and uh, when were they founded? Well, you know, the companies are usually in stealth mode for the first year or two when they're going, but we've really been out um, probably selling for about five years, six years old as a company that really doing a lot. It's it's a young company. Uh, you mm-hmm. look at all the vendors in the endpoint space, um, everybody that's, I, I would say, a substantial vendor in this space, uh, Sentinel One is definitely the youngest by years. But mm-hmm. there was, you know, there was some of the aspects of this that I thought was pretty intriguing when I was on the outside looking in and one part of it is look at the, the end point, the point where you're consuming and creating data. Um, that's always going to be the last line of defense. That's always where you're going to have to have the critical infrastructure for protection. And so that's where I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to do. Very, very, very crowded space, tons of vendors, tons of uh, silos and, and verticalization on that endpoint space. But I thought Sentinel One was doing some different things, maybe some some things the right way. Um, they're challenging and hard to do, but they're doing it with the right strategy. And I, I wanted to be a part of that. You know, it's trying to shift and disrupt an entire industry is not an easy thing. And they had the right team. I felt they had the right technology. Um, it was a matter of doing a lot of processes and execution, and just you know. There's a lot of work behind it, but I thought the opportunity was there, and it's it's proven out to, to definitely be so. And so the the growth has been very very substantial. Like it's a incredibly fast growth. Sure. I hear the term next generation endpoint protection frequently. Yeah, um, it, it's a space where there's not a lot of players actually. For the most part, there's a very small number of of people that are playing in that space. Give some examples of what makes it next generation what what are what what's sentinel one doing to to label themselves as that well it's i'm not sure that we label ourselves as next generation i tell people that we're the next the next chapter in the next generation story because Mm -hmm. i look at what is the quote unquote next generation vendors and again we're evolving beyond what they've done Um, if, if you think back you know, traditional endpoint security started with AV. You're going to put a signature database on an endpoint, and then you're going to scan every file against that signature database to see if it's good or bad, right? It's like having the FBI's most wanted list and you're doing, you know, scans or record lookups of every person coming in and out of a bank. But once they're, once they're allowed, once they're scanned, then there's no monitoring. They're free to go. That obviously wasn't a method that worked. In order to stop that, you had to have seen the threat at least one time. And and so the failure of AV created a new market, which was called EDR, Endpoint Detection and Response. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think EDR is next generation, and that's that's what started the thing. I mean, if, if you want to talk about that, Carbon Black, like over a decade ago, um, created EDR. So that's the next, gen- like the next generation is <laughs> 10 years ago. Um, and, and so you look at what they were doing. The whole notion of that was AV is not going to work. So let's put a sensor on the endpoint. 
let's do a flight data recorder or like it's a closed circuit TV. You're going to record everything and then you're going to analyze the recorded footage to see what happened, right? So it's kind of like going back to the crime scene, but now you've got a video of the crime scene so you can say what happened. Still doesn't really help you out a whole lot in, in, in many fashions. So what I thought was unique about Sentinel-1 is it's disrupted both of the AV and the EDR market, but it's consolidated it down into the new endpoint protection market. So on the AV side of the house, there is no signature database. We're using artificial intelligence to scan files and scripts and everything else. And based on the AI, when we read, write, move, copy, delete a file, we'll scan it at, at, at that very moment and tell you whether it's good or bad. So, you know, this, this notion of having to have seen the threat once to actually generate that signature, um, we don't have to worry about that, right? So we'll, we'll catch the threats. We've never seen them. So that's very disruptive in the AV marketplace. But in the, in the EDR marketplace, while we still do the whole, you know, capture and record telemetry off to the cloud, and we can do the whole, you know, what do we see happen type of investigation that you would with a traditional EDR, the real challenge, but the real intellectual property of Sentinel-1 was pulling that technology into the runtime of the agent. And, and where's what I mean with that? You know, the, the EDR world was all about if A and then B and then C occurs and they occur in that sequence, go ahead and tell the analyst that generate an alert and tell them something bad happened. Well, with Sentinel-1, we have a runtime behavior engine that tracks all of that at the speed of compute. And so mm. when A and then B and then C happens, we kill it. We, we convict it and we remove it from the machine. And so we're, we're literally doing behavior prevention. This is exactly why Sentinel-1 is so effective against ransomware. I don't care what the hash value of the ransomware file is. Ransomware behaves in a specific way. And as it tries to conduct its operations, behaviorally, we say that's not allowed operations and we stop it. It's, it's a very, very different model. But I would tell you that it's a model that is not brittle. It's a model that I suspect will be in this industry for decades to come. Mm -hmm. And so you can really ultimately, and, and I'm going to break this down for uh, for even me to understand. Um, ultimately, Sentinel One knows how your computer acts. It knows what's normal, essentially. And then when something out of the ordinary happens, as you state, you know it's convicted and eliminated. It doesn't have to look at a list, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the if you're looking from a cyber attack perspective, there's a lot of governments that are constantly looking for new ways to, to do exploitation on a machine. And any finding that they have, it's only a matter of time before that finding finds its way to the criminal elements, you know, who are going to use it to make money. There's never going to be an end <clears throat> to what I would call the exploitation avenues there's going to be new zero-day vulnerabilities on browsers, new zero-day vulnerabilities on applications. But once you get access to that machine as the attacker, and once you want to start to do things on that machine, your options become a bit more predictable, more, more defined. You're going to do privilege escalation. You're probably going to try to dump passwords from LSAS. 
if you're going to do try to do ransomware to make money, then you're going to probably be doing some sort of VBS or PS exec and pushing out scripts to, to actually download and execute ransomwares. So these behaviors, um, while there was an infinite number of paths to get to the machine, once you got there, those behaviors are known. And so that's what we're doing is we're saying, what is a potential malicious behavior on the machine? And let's just not allow it. And so I don't really care how you got access to the machine. I care that you're doing privilege escalation, that you're trying to pass a golden ticket or you're trying to do some sort of LSAS dump and I'm going to block you because that's not a legitimate way to do that. And that's, that's what happens is we doing that at runtime instead of doing it after the fact, instead of a day later saying, here's what I watched happen. We're saying, oh, this is an active VDR. We're blocking it. So tell me a little bit about how Sentinel One is leveraging threat intelligence, how you're baking it into your solution, and and why? Uh, well, let's start with that because I have a couple of follow ups. Yeah, I think you know, in this space, I've seen threat intelligence used for a long time now. There's good ways to use it. There's bad ways to use it. Um, using it as a primary defense measure and a primary prevention measure. That's what AV was trying to do. Right, that signature of database of, of, of AV files, right? That was a form of threat intelligence that had been applied in a very specific use case. The problem with with that is that it's very easy for an adversary <clears throat> to manipulate and to change the indicators that they're using in their attacks. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> there's now in the in this world of threat intelligence, we have you know. Threat actors that we we monitor where they're coming from, where they're going to. We we see the files they're using, the network connections. Like, it's a really really big space now, and, there, and there's tons of data, tons of information. We'll we'll see people take over sites and use them as C2 hubs, um, and they'll be legitimate sites, and then that site gets cleaned up. So, as a practitioner, as a as a business owner, it's really really hard to figure out how do you use threat intelligence in your cybersecurity program. Like, cybersecurity is already hard enough for most companies. Trying to figure out and maintain an, an update and a contextual awareness of threat intel, like that's that's even more difficult, right? Mm-hmm. So what we've done with Sentinel One is we take threat intelligence from a wide variety of sources, um, and we have connections and teams literally throughout the world that are helping work on this challenge, and and companies that we partnership with, and companies that we buy threat intelligence from, and we curate that. And we manage the context and the relevancy and the currency, and we just bake it into the product. It's inherently involved in what we do. I'm not going to tell a customer that they have to go out and um, figure out how to use the threat intel to add context to an alert in a console. Like We're going to just do that for them. We'll put all of that around it. So when you're, when you're opening up an investigation in Sentinel-1, we want to put all elements of that investigation stitched together into a single story. And we're going to use the threat Intel to help do that stitching and provide that context. Uh, so mm-hmm. We're really just, let's make it the easy button, right? Let's put it right there in front of our customers in a way that's pre-digested. And all they have to do is just leverage the benefits of it. And, and that's where we're focusing. Sentinel one is a mission critical portion of our incident response program, uh, you know, for containment and for, and, and for a number of reasons. 
having an added dimension though of this threat intelligence it truly builds context and and certainly uh you know it aids a lot to, in terms of the investigation itself how do you feel you know in terms of fighting these threat actors and, and cyber criminals in general um where does that put us on the battlefield well, I think there's a lot of aspects to the conversation. Um, you, you see what's going on with MITRE ATT&CK in terms of how they're trying to help standardize um, the the value in building a matrix uh, and an open repository of adversary techniques. To me, that's really good threat intel. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not IOC-driven, meaning it's not atomically and statically driven indicators from a specific campaign. It is the tools and the methods by which the adversaries are operating. And now we can build defenses literally against the way they want to work. Regardless of what bullets they're firing, it's, it's how, they're, how they're moving, how they're tactically engaging. I, I want to just touch that real quick. It, do, you, do you see that pattern? I mean, it, yes, they're using different tools. But do you see that, you know, like a Sod Nakibi or Ryuk or who, do you, do you feel like they're, they're, that they found a comfortable method, but they're just using different tools to execute on that. Yes. Yes. Um, I would say, you know, and we've, we've obviously connected you you have access to our threat researchers um, mm-hmm. because we don't have the same type of, of data, right? We don't have customers under duress per se. So we have the luxury of just researching um, in the public and going and tracking down, the, the adversary stuff versus reacting on engagements. Mm-hmm. So when we do, yeah, we see that, that number one, I think there's a difference between threat intelligence and threat attribution. Threat mm-hmm. attribution is far more difficult. Um, and, and the most interesting thing in our career, I don't know why in this cybersecurity space, if you just say so-and-so is attributed by this and you give one or two high level indicators to align that, it then becomes like a gold fast rule and everybody just believes it. <laughs> Real threat attribution is very difficult. It's, it's very difficult. You have spycraft as, you know, a, a mission, a nation state capability. Um, and for, for companies to be able to kind of claim it as quickly and easily as they do, which will be something like, Oh, Hey, I saw the character set that they use to compile this or whatever that may be. <laughs> right. That's, that's not, that's not attribution. That's um, what they're doing in, in for a 15 minute window. <laughs> it's building some evidence capabilities. That's far, far, far from attribution. So what I see a lot of is, Hey, I'm going to associate this ransomware activity with this crimeware group or, or with this, this APT group. Look in, in what we've seen from threat researchers, what we see in our, our threat intelligence programs these crime groups are a bit more fluid than people want to recognize. It's, you know, a lot of them are, are Russian there in, in that area, but these actors are banding and coming together sometimes on just individual campaigns. And I'm seeing far more uh, separation into um, crime as a service platforms being built. So you could get um, something like a RIAC or something that's dropping off of the same platform but the actual actors running on it um, that are executing could be varied from engagement to engagement. But you know, there's there's commonalities in terms of which platforms they pick, uh, which 
you know, are you going to use TrickBot as your delivery mechanism? What's going to be your drop payload system? What is the code share, the revenue share they're going to do with the different operators, of those platforms? That's the stuff that we're seeing emerge in the cybercrime space. And it's not as simple as saying, you know what, um, so-and-so is uh, typing in Russian on this forum. And when I reverse engineer their code, they're Russian. So we're going to, we're going to associate them with some known Fin, fin groups, fin APT groups that that have had Russian speaking before because they happen to use these two these two tool sets. Like, look, open source software exists in the U.S. in the world. Um, you know, Apache, PHP, <laughs> MySQL, all these things were open source projects. You have the same thing going on in cybercrime. You have shared tool sets. You have shared a lot of shared binaries and commonalities. And every time that someone's come out with a strong attribution claim, and um, I, I find it very interesting, we want to reach out, we have this intelligence conversation, super excited to get on the phone. And by the time we leave the phone, nobody's confident um, because there's just a <laughs> strong lack of evidence of being able to provide true attribution. Right. And you I know, guess this, the expectations know. are different coming from the military, but to me, attribution means a very, a very specific set of things, right? And broad claims or, you know, accusations is not attribution. Accusations. Right. No, it's hard, hard, fast, fact, factual, static is really more, right? I mean, I think that's really what you're looking for. Yeah, I see very, very little provided in the cybersecurity space that would let me go run a military operation on it. And right. if I don't have that confidence, then, that, then that's a concern, right? So we, we make a lot of accusations in this space, and there's not a high degree of standards to enforce them. What kinds of things are you doing to look forward and how does Sentinel one fit into that? Well, it doesn't take a genius to say that ransomware is transformational. Um, we saw it coming, you, you know, if you look back five years ago, we put out the industry's first ransomware warranty because we were very confident it was going to become a major issue. And, and most people back then just thought it was like another thing. It's just another type of, uh, you know, you got, all different types of cyber classes of attacks, ransomware is just going to be another one of flash in the pan, just like crypto mining or something. But it's not. And and I'll tell you why back then I thought... Ask any carrier, by the way, Jared. <laughs> right? <laughs> the key is this. The point of cybercrime is to make money. Right? That's, that's the whole point of cybercrime. And ransomware is very, very fast at making money. But more importantly, it takes the pain out of it. Like, you're not dropping off money laundering mules you're not selling data records really cheap because they don't have value you're holding a company hostage you're extracting millions of dollars from them and you're doing it in 90 days or less like that's mm. so if you want to see the, the trend like the trend is ransomware is going to increase um, right now on our threat intel side we see the crime actors in the back end working on linux ransomware like that's that's what's going to be coming down the pipe. They want to go after those Linux systems because those are going to be even harder to recover. Um, they're going to keep going after any way possible to cripple a company and make money. Ransomware is it's the thing, and it's it's incredibly frustrating for me because I'm literally sitting on the answer to it. Um, right, but it's it's hard to. When, when you say well, it's hard to get that message out, right? I mean, yeah. you, you are the challenge here is a number of things. You know, I would say the hubris of, of a lot of IT professionals thinking that they know better than anybody else. Right. I mean, I, and I'm not trying to 
talk smack. I'm just saying in general, I, you know, I've seen hubris be the cause of, of uh, millions of dollars of ransomware being paid. Um, I just the same simply- way. Like I was a buyer for six years in the air force. I was the same way. I didn't trust a vendor, anything a vendor said, cause they were a vendor and all they cared about was making money. At least that was my perception. Right. But now I'm, now I get to taste my own medicine, right? Like now I literally have a solution that stops this stuff and breaks it. And you just, people look at you so skeptical, like sure you do, you know, it's, it's yeah, right. frustrating. And, and it almost kind of shocks me a little bit, Jared, you know, where it's like nobody get, is getting the memo that, that the way of the way that you're doing business, the way that you've structured your, you know, your infa- your infrastructure, your security protocols, these things aren't working. The, the insurance carriers are bleeding money because um, because their customers may or may not even know how to fill out a cyber risk questionnaire. Um, and if they are doing it, maybe they're not including all of the data that might be useful in a, in a, in a solid underwriting event. Um, you know, there's a lot of people suffering uh, aside from the businesses that are down in, in, to your point, some of these cases last 30, 60, 90 days. I mean, where the company's literally doing nothing, um, to think that you're right to think that we have an answer to think that, you know, Sentinel one endpoint protection, it, it truly, um, is, it, it takes your company from, you know, a C plus security maturity to an a minus uh we're leaving a little bit of room for process and procedure there jared (laughs) but but you know what i mean like there's we're just not paying attention from an it community we're not paying attention to those things and what you just said about linux and knowing how much data is managed by linux boxes out there with only a moderate understanding of how to even recover it data from it if something should go wrong, um, this is where we really need to start paying very close attention to that future state. Um, so, wow. Um, Linux is a, is an operating system that a lot of companies don't even run AV on. I I find it all the time where companies, because number one is they don't think there's malware for it. They think malware is really focused only on windows, which I can tell you confidently it's not. But two, it's, you know, these are production server systems. They don't want anything that's doing compute on those systems that takes away from making the money. And it's a gigantic percentage of, of companies use it as their only platform. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. So I've, I've, you know, I've dealt with Linux for a long time. I just, um, I, I find it surprising that it's taken them this long to figure it out. But, you know, the money, the money talks and they'll figure it out and they'll, they'll start hitting those. Um, but it, it is what it is. I think you, you've got a lot of people who have gone out and they've followed the compliance guidelines. And by following those compliance guidelines, they have AV and they have a couple of things in place, but they don't find themselves protected because they don't have multi-factor authentication. They don't have a behavioral endpoint system in place. And that leaves them very vulnerable. Um, and I find it quite interesting that, you know, our government response to that was, well, let's, let's threaten the victim's you know, with, with, uh, with penalties, because we're going to say that the, that we know for a fact who's getting these payments. Look, I, I wish we could find a way to not pay any of them because then ransomware would go away and they'd move on to the next way to try to make some money. 
but they right. figured out how to make money. They're taking businesses down. And I've, I've been on with seeing companies that are on the verge of going out of business because of this. So, yeah. you know, how about instead of let's, let's point the finger and beat up the victims that we put some policies out there and recommend like, Hey, these, these things and these compliance measures that were drafted decades ago that are literally decades out of date, maybe we should update them. Maybe we should recognize that there's new technologies we need to have and, and let's put those out there um, for our compliance standards. We'll get there, but it's, it's, a, it's a shame that it's taken ransomware um, to kind of be the wake-up call to get us to update those standards. It's difficult to, to be on a phone call where you find out you can't even pay the ransom. I don't even know where, why, that, why that would even work. Well, I mean, if, if, we, if we look at this, right, if other areas of United States commerce were literally being held hostage and, and ransoms were being demanded at the volume at which they're occurring here with cybersecurity ransomware, right? If you take shipping containers and our shipping containers were constantly being boarded by pirates and they were holding people ransom, you would be pretty darn confident that the, the government would step in and protect commerce and protect the country. Right. Um, where is it at? This is right. literally what's happening. There's literally companies and jobs on the line. And where, where's the, where's the protection? Why are we not starting to threaten sanctions against the companies, that, the countries that are harboring these criminals? And we do know where they're coming out of. Um, why are we not pushing some of the heat on them instead of pointing the, the finger at the victim and saying, shame on you for being compliant and getting breached? That, my friend, is a good place to pause. We could talk about that particular topic um, at great length. And as a matter of fact, I would even uh, invite you to come back because I, I, I really believe that that might even be a great conversation to have with a couple of our breach coaches and have you involved in that as well. I, I think that that's a, a really good question. Where where are we in, in protecting commerce uh, from these nation states that are clearly um, benefiting from this? So, um, Jared, thank you, sir, for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was fun. We'll we'll be talking soon, I'm sure. And uh, and with that, I hope you have a happy holidays. If I don't talk to you, all right. Appreciate it. Thanks. That does it for this final episode of Security Superpowers for 2020. We hope that you enjoyed our discussion with Jared Phipps from Sentinel One. Thank you to our amazing CEO Joe Mann for giving us this opportunity. For Colin Hanks, Severine Fortin, and everyone who participated or contributed to the podcast this season. For our listeners, we wish you a safe, happy, and healthy holiday season. Make sure to join us again soon for another episode of Security Superpowers.